to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On the second Monday in October, many cities and states celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, which replaces the federally recognized but controversial Columbus Day holiday. Indigenous Peoples Day has been officially recognized in North Carolina since 2017 when Governor Ray Cooper issued a proclamation declaring that the second Monday in October as Indigenous Peoples Day in this state. He has issued a proclamation every year. As noted in this year's proclamation, North Carolina is home to more than 122,000 American Indians and has eight historic tribes. The proclamation recognizes that American Indians inhabited this continent long before the arrival of European settlers and that we should honor and respect the heritage and the many cultures and economic contributions of Native American tribes in North Carolina. The proclamation also acknowledges the inequality of the treatment of Native peoples and the history of destruction of indigenous cultures. During this evening's show, we're going to talk about the rich culture of Native Americans in the state of North Carolina and the legal issues facing their communities. We have joining us for this discussion Greg Richardson, who is the Executive Director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs, which is the largest Indian commission in the United States. Also joining us is Heather McMillan Nakai. Heather is engaged in litigation across the United States, seeking enforcement of individual Indian rights of the Lumbee people. And also joining us is Joshua Richardson, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. Joshua is the president of the Student Bar Association and president of the Native American Law Student Association. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I'd like to first have each of you share with us the tribe that you're a member of um, and tell us a little bit about, about your tribe. So Greg, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, I am a member of the Holowasaponi Indian Tribe located in Halifax and Warren County, North Carolina. And our population would range anywhere from three to 4,000. Uh, we still operate our old Holowa Indian School uh, today, it's operated under the, under the general statutes of North Carolina as a charter school. And each year we have a very large uh, celebration called a powwow. It's kind of a homecoming and a celebration. So uh, this year was one of our largest, uh, and that's been going on since 1965. And when was that powwow? Held? That was April, the third weekend in April. And so is it typically in April? It's always the third, third weekend, and that's a celebration of our state recognition. That was uh, the date in 1965 that we, or the month in which we received our state recognition. Excellent, excellent. Heather? Sure. My name is Heather McMillan Nakai. I am a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. It's located down in Robinson County. We number, on average, estimates between 38,000 and 55,000. I think the official estimate is 55,000. We have a variety of communities, about 11 districts, 11 to 14 districts. 
tribal members range mostly live in Robinson County, about 30,000 live in Robinson County. It means that we are a third, about a third of the population in the county. We hold office there. We've recently elected the first native district attorney in Robinson County history. Of that, we're very proud. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon because the Lumbee tribe was federally recognized in 1956. But since that time, there's not been much movement. It's a little unclear what that legislation meant, what was it meant to achieve, and what did it actually achieve, which is what I've spent my life dedicated to clarifying and interpreting for our people. So federal recognition has been a huge struggle and is what we often focus on, but it's often unclear, I think, to our population and to the state of North Carolina's population what that really means, what impacts it will have, and how it will benefit not only our tribe, but our neighbors, our neighboring tribes, and our neighbors in general. Excellent. Joshua. My name is Joshua Richardson, and I am also a member of the Halawasaponi tribe, just as Greg is as well. And I grew up in Hollister, North Carolina, where our tribe is located. Most of the uh, members of our tribe are, live in Halifax or Warren County. Of course, there are people like me who have moved to other cities, but the largest amount of our population for our tribe is still located locally within those counties. And as Greg mentioned, we do have our powwow every third weekend in April, and I would say it is the biggest event that those two counties likely see yearly. It brings more people to my home community than you would see for anything else because it's a small community, very close-knit, where people it still go by the sayings of knowing your grandparents before they would say what your first name is. But at the same time, a lot of people come for this big celebration every year. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to ensure we brought a piece of that culture to North Carolina Central when we had our inaugural powwow last year on campus. Similar to a lot of other schools that host powwows, I wanted to make sure that we brought that here to share a part of our culture and to also just continue to build that up and help out with our cultural awareness as well. And I also plan to assist my tribe with issues similar to what Heather dedicates her work to, because we don't have as many attorneys in our tribe. To my knowledge, maybe one or two other practicing attorneys, but no one that locally is focusing on the issues. And so I want to make it my goal and a big part of my work to work on those issues post-law school. So you mentioned the, the powwow that we had our first one uh, last year. Um, so we've got one coming up this year. When is that scheduled for? Absolutely. We're very excited. It's going to be on November 2nd, Saturday, November 2nd, from 12 to 5 p.m., and it will be our second annual Soaring Eagle powwow. And so it is put on by the Native American Law Student Association, which I'm the president of, as well as the Diversity Office of Inclusion across campus. So we partner with them to ensure that we can bring all the resources we need to the table to do all the things we need to make this a successful event. And we're very excited. Excellent. Mm -hmm. well, so to, to, to be sure, that, you know, the, at the law school, we've had uh, powwows on a regular basis for, for years. And I think that uh, to uh, Joshua's uh, credit, uh, that has expanded. Right. Uh, to become a, a, a university-wide right. uh, celebration. And this is the second uh, university-wide right. uh, celebration that uh, we've had, and we've always had uh, strong support for that from the uh, Hawasapone uh, uh, Nation uh, as they have uh, participated in a lot of uh, our events with uh, activities and food. Yes. Uh, which is uh, Very tremendous. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be a powwow without good food. That's right. <laughs> 
So now, Greg, you're executive director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs. Can you yes. share with us uh, what that organization does and the role that you play? Yes. I am the executive director, and of course, uh, uh, directors of organizations uh, oversee staffing, budgeting, uh, planning, coordination of, uh, of efforts, and we're housed within the North Carolina Department of Administration. So uh, through our uh, legislation, which uh, was uh, adopted by the North Carolina General Assembly in 1971, we're classified as an advocacy agency, and there are other advocacy agencies within the North Carolina Department of Administration. Our focus is to look at the needs of our American Indian population, uh, focus on training. We do that through our workforce development program. Focus on housing. We do that through our Section 8 housing program. Focus on domestic violence and sexual assault. We, we have a program that keys in on that. And then workforce development. We all know that we need jobs in our communities. Our, our people constantly need training so that they'll have better quality of life. So through the workforce development program, we're able to send a young student who's graduating from high school into a community college to get a skill, a skill that they can use in the, in the, in the market. Excellent. Now, Greg, could you, could you just talk about, and, and Heather mentioned this, uh, the uh, distinction between federally recognized sure. and state uh, mm -hmm. recognized, and I know there's a right. huge difference right. uh, between, the, uh, between the two. Uh, mm -hmm. So could you kind of just explain that and then the role of the uh, commission in sure. dealing with, the, uh, with those distinctions? Sure. One of the uh, charges we have by statute is state recognition. And the commission has created state recognition policies and procedures uh, that uh, support that, that statute and the work that we do. Uh, we uh, receive petitions for state recognition from groups in our state that are interested in becoming state recognized. And what that means is that once they're recognized, the, uh, the tribe would have a seat on the Commission of Indian Affairs, first of all. Then secondly, the tribe would become eligible for many other state and federal programs where there are set-aside programs designed to zero in and target American Indian community needs. So that's, that's very worthwhile. The uh, state recognition uh, is similar to federal recognition, but not quite the same. The jurisdiction for state recognition lies within the state. The jurisdiction for federal recognition lies within the Federal Government Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, of course, uh, Indian tribes or Indian groups can petition the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and they can also go through the what's called a congressional route. There are there's, you know, uh, several ways that tribes can approach federal recognition. So once the tribe becomes federally recognized, then there's a, a, a good number of programs and services that the members of the tribe or the citizens of the tribe would be eligible for, such as Indian Health Service, such as gaming, such as um, uh, set aside program, programs for uh, development within the community, water, sewage. Um, for example, at Eastern Band of Cherokee, they have a hospital there. Uh, water and sewage, uh, of course, they have a, a whole division within the tribe that handles water, sewage, and those kind of things. So the state, federal, state recognition brings forth some opportunities for services and uh, uh, training services in terms of recognition. Federal recognized uh, tribes enjoy the same type or same level of services and recognition, but at a more expansive level. Certainly there are a lot more programs on the federal side and services on the federal side than there are on the state side of things. Mm -hmm. 
Now, hi- historically, <laughs> could you talk about and, and Heather, you know, uh, and, and Joshua, you can you can join in on this. Talk about why there is this uh, these recognitions and the uh, uh, legal basis and the factual basis for having uh, or requiring that there be this uh, this recognition both at the federal level and at the uh, at the state level. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- well, again, it's uh, an opportunity for tribes to receive uh, services and assistance that uh, they would not certainly receive in other other ways. Uh, for example, if it were not state, for state or federal recognition, many of our tribes in North Carolina would not be involved or engaged in some of the programs and providing services that they're able to provide at this point. So without that recognition, certainly you're not able to get there. Now, if the playing field was level and throughout the United States we all had the same opportunities throughout history, then there may not be a need for recognition, but we still have those needs. We have the highest dropout rate in the state. We have, and in the nation, we have the highest diabetes rate of any ethnic group in uh, in the United States. So we have these uh, tools that we can use through state and federal recognition to address some of those issues that we're confronted with. And historically, I think I can speak to the development of why these ne- these recognitions are necessary. Um, coming on the hills of Indigenous Peoples Day in the United States, the myth that Columbus or some explorer of some variety found and discovered the United States, the continental United States, is just that, a myth. There were indigenous people living coast to coast, north to south, on the North American continent when non-indigenous people arrived on the coast. Sometimes that was before the known explorers arrived here. In those instances, we had thriving communities, thriving economies, possession of land, cultures that lived and required certain access to certain geographical locations to continue to subsist throughout history. With the influx of colonization, you see that land base begin to shrink. And as colonists arrived, we, we all know about the Revolutionary War, the, the succession from England. Native people played an active role in that, and the, people, the colonists who were in America recognized that things were happening to these other human beings who also occupied this space. And they did not see us as identical, though during colonial times, arguably, they did see us as peers in some ways but not inclusive. And the way that the colonial United States handled that is through the United States Constitution, which says in Article 3, Section 8, that only the federal government can regulate amongst the states and with Indian tribes. And so that begins the foundation of what has developed as federal Indian law. And when I say federal Indian law, I mean laws that pertain primarily to or exclusively to indigenous tribes' interests. So as, the, as federal Indian law develops over time from the Constitution, what you find is that there are particular needs for tribal people or m- m- primarily early on for non-tribal people. You find treaties for land succession because colonists didn't have enough land base to do what they wanted to do, which was farm. Eventually, you, the law has to develop to meet those needs. And so you find during the treaty era, it dealt primarily with land, hunting rights, fishing needs, subsistence, living, the ability to live 
in a place that they had pre- tribes had previously controlled. Mm. And so, and and, 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 the, and these were treaties which were entered into between the uh, United States and the various Indian nations that were that populated uh, the country. Though and, not necessarily uh, everyone, yeah, right. and that is why we have now it's, the need for recognition yeah, in the state yeah, and federal levels, the disparities that exist. Mm-hmm. Because you also have federal laws that cover things like what NAGPRA, the Native American Graves and Patrimony Repatriation Act, which is strangely, sounds very fancy, but it's a strange way of saying what happens when you go build your subdivision and dig up somebody's grandma. This is the Legal Legal Review. We're going to have to take a break. uh, And I want you to stay uh, with us. We are talking about uh, the um, uh, Indigenous uh, uh, Peoples uh, Day. Uh, that is uh, celebrated uh, increasingly around the country uh, as opposed to uh, Christopher Columbus uh, Day and the history and background of, uh, of that. And uh, we want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this discussion, but we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution provides that the right of the people to be secure in their persons and property against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. This means that, presumably, a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy in their person or property, and searches and seizures by the police must be reasonable to be valid under the Fourth Amendment. What is reasonable under the Fourth Amendment depends on the circumstances. For example, certain searches and seizures are considered to be reasonable only if the government has first obtained a warrant, while other searches and seizures are reasonable without a warrant. However, a person does not have a reasonable expectation of privacy if he exposes something to the public to see, such as conversations held in public, property viewed with the naked eye in a vehicle, or open blinds in a home. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. On another note, it's our Fall Fest membership drive here at WNCU. Thank you to donors who have contributed during this important fall membership drive. Listener contributions gives WNCU the resources needed to continue to play wonderful jazz programming. If you still haven't made your pledge of support, we're asking you to do it now, especially today. You make the difference. Pledge online at WNCU.org. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the issues surrounding Native Americans in the state of North Carolina and nationally. We have with us as our guest Greg Richardson, who is the executive director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs, Heather McMillan-Nakai, who is an attorney, and Joshua Richardson, who is a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. He is also president of the Student Bar Association and president President of the Native American Law Students Association. So right before the break, um, Heather, you were talking about the distinction between 
federal recognition and state recognition and the need for federal recognition, and, and we have to cut you off to take a break, but wanted to, to go back to you and ask you to complete your thought in terms of the importance of, of this federal recognition. All right. So after the Constitution is passed and has this important provision that relates to how the federal government deals with Indian tribes, it says Indian tribes and doesn't define what that means. And most of American history tells us that in the early years of the early 1800s, in fact, during Andrew Jackson's reign, we have the Indian Removal Act. And most history books in elementary school tell you that the Indians were all removed west of the Mississippi so that there would be land for the colonists. But we're in North Carolina. We're all sitting here. We weren't all moved. Um, Even the people we know were moved, didn't all go. And Um, and those who were moved were forcefully moved. Forcefully moved in many instances, though not all. Um, There are some tribes in Oklahoma will tell you they voluntarily went when they saw the impending need. And so it's not until the end of the early 1900s when we see a true need for what we were talking about during the break, standing. The Constitution does not tell us what Indian tribes means, what that phrase means. And there had not historically been any clarification of that language. And so in 1934, Congress passed what's called the Indian Reorganization Act that is supposed to address this ambiguity, not just in the Constitution, but in federal Indian laws that had developed until that point. To make it a little clearer, who is an Indian, capital I, and who, who, who receives the benefits for that for, as in that status, who qual- what qualifies as an Indian tribe, and it defines Indian tribe and the term Indian. That's th- some of the earliest formal pros- procedures you see for fi- recognizing an Indian tribe at the federal level. And so from 1934 until where we are now, you see a development, a need in federal Indian law and federal law as a whole to define what is an Indian tribe and who satisfies that definition States have different procedures. North Carolina's is very well laid out. There are some states that have none or have very ambiguous language for how you recognize an Indian tribe. And federal law will often say, and this service goes to Indian tribes, and you then need an answer for what that is. States can provide it in some instances. The federal government can provide it. But that is why you need federal recognition and how sometimes you end up with state recognition because it is a varied capacity. And, and Heather, let, let me just, you had mentioned at one point earlier when you were talking about the, the Lumbee tribe, your tribe, and you mentioned that, that it has received federal recognition, but there's some confusion as to what that means. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Um, there have been a lot of phases in federal Indian policy in the early years, we call it. We have, you know, the treaty era is what we most frequently start at. Um, One of the most unfortunate phases in federal Indian policy was the termination era, which began in the early 1950s, where there were aspects in the country, elements in our congressional leadership who believed that termination was the right way to to end Indian tribes, was the best way to answer the problems facing the country and the populations of Indian tribes. And so they decided that the way that we were going to address that is by terminating tribal status as a method for addressing what they saw as deficits. The Lumbee Act was passed during this era. Now, history as written tells us that the Lumbee Act was passed in termination. It must therefore have been termination era policy. Unfortunately, that's not all of history. And I think North Carolina in particular has been subjected, like most tribes on most states on the East Coast, 
to what I call a conclusory version of history that says federal Indian law didn't apply here, so we don't need to go look to see if it was ever applied here. We don't have treaties because there aren't treaties on the table. We don't know if they're in somebody's grandma's attic, which is where at least one treaty on the East Coast has been found. So as a result of that, when I unco went to uncover, what did the Lumbee Act mean? Where did it come from? Why did we need it? Why did we go after it? What I found was that really that movement had started as early as 1937 and that it had been coming at the direction of the federal government who was telling the tribe, well, the problem is you're not a treaty tribe and we don't have anything telling us that we have to provide you by name with service. You need to go get legislation with your name in it. So they did, and unfortunately, it's not until 1956 that that legislation gets passed. But it's passed, and we don't have lawyers. As Joshua just told us, his tribe of three to 4,000 people, as he can recall, can only have one, or three, one to three in 2019. My tribe of 38 to 50,000 has more than 100 practicing attorneys, but who know federal Indian law? I think I can count 11, and who are practicing in North Carolina and practicing federal Indian law, well, practicing federal Indian law, period, we might have six. So this is a, a really complex area, and as you yes, noted, you really is. do need that expertise. And so, Joshua, you mentioned when you were um, sharing information about your tribe and your desire to be an advocate similar to Heather, can you share why you decided to go to law school and why being able to advocate for your tribe is so important to you? Absolutely. So I decided to go to law school like a lot of my colleagues because I want to help. I know that seems so simplistic to a lot of people, but it's just something that was ingrained in me from my parents and my family and likely from my community. We care about one another. We try to, you know, have each other's back whenever we can. And a lot of times the issue is the lack of education and resources in those areas like that, especially supporting native tribes. I knew that there were programs and attempts throughout my uh, grade school years where you may learn about it, but now even some of those programs are restricted because of funding that comes from different federal programs and other ones depending upon the priorities. And for me, I knew that I wanted to be able to help my tribe. And so when you're blessed and given the ability to do well in school, you got to you know look for guidance on what that looks like. And for me, when I talked to my parents about going to law school, I said, I don't know exactly all the details of what I'll do, and it'll probably change a million times when I get there, but the core of it that will never change is that I want to help people back home. And so regardless of what when my final decision was for pursuing law school, I knew that the first Native attorney in North Carolina did attend Central, and that meant a lot to me because I said, clearly, there's history there that isn't sometimes really talked about. And then there's a lot of funding from scholarships, such as the Julian Pierce Scholarship, that helps Native people that want to attend law school or undergrad. So for me, when I decided to go, it was keeping that core value of helping home, but then learning all I can in law school and realizing that that won't be the end of it. Because as Heather mentioned, you don't learn federal Indian law in law school. And there may be some schools that have classes that touch on it, but of course you have all these core classes you have to take to become just the first level of attorney, get that JD behind your name, if they, the way they put it. So then you need some kind of advanced education, which sometimes may be a certificate in 
indigenous people law or federal Indian law, or it may be a separate degree program. And for me, because I knew that I want to be able to help with these issues such as federal recognition and issues with disparities where people just are not understanding how to help Native communities, because I think that's a separate issue is the sensitivity of the issue that a lot of attorneys may say, yes, sure, I represent Native people, but do you really understand the sensitivity of some of the issues Native people face, like the displacement of children and things like that? So for me, pursuing that LLM and Indigenous People Law, which is my plan post-law school, will help me understand a lot more of the federal Indian law aspects to be able to help my tribe, and not just my tribe, but other tribes as well, because I want to be able to join the people like Heather who are fighting on this level to help with recognition, to help with issues that people just need to better understand why would a tribe ask for this, or the need, because sometimes even though it may look like a small thing to people from the outside looking in, something as small as being able to have just your name recognized or just the fact of who your tribe is matters a lot because it's not just about North Carolina awareness, but as we've talked about federal recognition and because we need ability to have those programs, we need people that are fighting and wanting to do this to help their communities. So in a short or in long, <laughs> that is the reason why I wanted to go to law school is simply to help and to help my Native people. Now, Greg, can you, you know, in terms of uh, trying to draw the distinctions between uh, federally recognized nations and the state recognized, could you talk about the advantages enjoyed by the Cherokee, uh, which uh, a lot of people would know about because of the uh, casino Gaming. Uh, that uh, that's uh, that's there, uh, and 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 the privileges and benefits that they uh, that nation enjoys as opposed to the situation of uh, the Lumbees or the Halawasaponi uh, nations uh, that are state-recognized but not federally recognized. Well, certainly, uh, as I mentioned before, on the, within the state-federal uh, recognition realm of things, there's a lot more services and opportunities. Federally recognized tribes can opt to uh, operate casino gaming or operate a casino, whereas a state-recognized tribe, we can't get there. So without the ability to uh, go after that resource, you see, we're hamstrung in terms of our ability to serve and protect and provide for our communities. So that's a real disparity. On the state side, it's needed too because there's a lot of things that go on in states. You know, I could give you some examples, but I don't, I don't want to do that. But I'll just talk about North Carolina being uh, way ahead of a lot of other states in terms of what we're able to do here because we have that that tool, that state recognition. We can compete for Indian housing funds to provide housing for our families. We can, we can compete for workforce development funds, which means that we can provide dra uh, training and job opportunities for our uh, tribal citizens. We can, uh, through that mechanism, have an opportunity to serve at many other state-level positions, such as serving on councils and commissions with other, other parts of state government. That's very important, too. Uh, state recognition also provides an opportunity to be counted as Indians in the 2020 census coming up and have in past, 2010, 1990. Without that uh, classification or category or distinction by statute, I'm going to say again, we lose the ability to be counted as an Indian people in our state. So uh, to bring it right down to ground zero, for example, in March, in April of this year, the 2020 census came to us and we met with the census officials 
each of our tribes in our state, state-recognized tribes, had the opportunity to expand their tribal communities, their territory, or to make corrections. Sometimes government makes an error. For example, there might have been a part of a community that was included in the Halawasaponi community that was really not part of the Halawasaponi service area. So therefore, the, the data would be skewed for the next 10 years until another census comes around. So the 2020 census will have an opportunity for Lumbee, Saponi, Koheri, Wakamasuan, Eastern Band of Cherokee, to look at those geographic maps and to make sure that they're distinctly designed to fit where the tribe feels is the real community. So that when the Census Bureau generates data from 2020 and the next 10 years, that data is going to be directly pointed to the American Indian community. So once you have the data, you have the, another tool to compete for funding for programs and services. And it, not to say the political clout that you have with, with that as far as representation in Congress, representation in the General Assembly. Now, now people also don't recognize, and I'll let all of you speak to this, that there are different Indian groupings all over North Carolina sure. that aren't typically recognized as such uh, in uh, uh, Orange County, mm -hmm. in Duplin County. Uh, uh, so how many different uh, indigenous groupings are there in North Carolina? And then how do you distinguish between those groupings and those that are recognized uh, statewide sure. as a part of sure. the uh, uh, state uh, commission? Well, at the, you know, the, you have the federal-recognized tribes, you have the state-recognized tribes, and then you have the unrecognized tribes. And that's not only for North Carolina, that's, that's a national, that's, ever, that's yep. the way it is throughout the country, that's the way the system is set up for us. So um, services coming from the federal side, if you're federally recognized, you know, we, we mentioned that. State recognition, the same thing. Now, for those unrecognized groups or bands, uh, what I try to explain to people is that that would be like a community that is uh, a crossroads in a community that uh, is not incorporated, uh, does not receive revenue sharing from the general, from the local county or, or government, but it's there. You know, Centerville, up near where we are, is a crossroad. People live there, but there's not a mayor of the town. They do not receive uh, uh, tax funding from the county as far as for schools and fire departments and those kind of things. So they, the unrecognized groups are kind of like the unincorporated communities mm -hmm. of our country. They're there. We know they're there. That We know they're Indian. We know that, you know, uh, they have needs. And so what we strive to do through that part of it is that design, to design some programs that we can reach out to those communities with. For example, we administer a Section 8 housing program. That is not an Indian set-aside program. We serve seven counties, primarily the eastern, eastern counties of our state-recognized tribes. We cover Halifax, Warren, uh, Person, Sampson, uh, Columbus, and there's another program for the, uh, the, the Lumbee area. But through that program, we have more American Indian landlords participating in that program than I would challenge any other community to show me that we have in Durham County, for example, we have as many Indian landlords or as, as many American Indian participants in that Section 8 program as we do. Mm. So that's important. So the challenge for other states, you know, look to the north, look to the south, look to the west. I would challenge anyone to look at those states and see if 
what the barometer is in terms of the services being provided to American Indians versus what we're providing here in North Carolina. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we are uh, talking with uh, Greg uh, Richardson, uh, who is the Executive Director of the uh, Commission on Indian Affairs here in North Carolina, Uh, Heather Nakai, who is an attorney with the National Indian Gaming Commission, and uh, Joshua Richardson, who is a uh, third-year law student at North Carolina Central uh, University uh, School of Law, want you to uh, stay with us. We're going to take another quick break, and we will be right back uh, to continue this discussion. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 1L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and these are your weekly announcements. On October 29th, the Virtual Justice Project will host a telehealth event entitled HIV. Yes, it's still a thing. The event will be held on the campus of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, beginning at 10.40 a.m. to 11.40 a.m. The North Carolina Central University School of Law's Native American Law Student Association, in partnership with the North Carolina Central University's Department of Diversity and Inclusion, presents the second annual Soaring Eagle Pow Wow on November 2nd at 12 o'clock p.m. Vendors will be present. On November 6th at 1 o'clock p.m. to 2 o'clock p.m., Professor Shelley B. Fullwood, in partnership with the Virtual Justice Project, will host talks with North Carolina creatives about the scandals of copying in visual arts and literary scenes in their personal careers and beyond. This talk will feature local creative professionals who will introduce their business to the community and discuss how copying affects their creative process and business. The event will be held within the North Carolina Central University School of Law Telepresence Room. For more information regarding the Virtual Justice Project and its upcoming events, please refer to the Technology slash Virtual Justice tab on the NCCU School of Law website at law.nccu.edu. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been your weekly announcement. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Greg Richardson, Executive Director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs, Heather McMillan Nakai. Heather is engaged in litigation across the United States, seeking enforcement of individual Indian rights of the Lumbee people and Joshua Richardson, who is the president of the Student Bar Association of North Carolina Central University School of Law, where he is a third-year law student about to graduate. He is also president of the Native American Law Students Association. Greg, right before the break, you were talking about the uh, benefits of being recognized by the state of North Carolina. And you've been working with the commission for decades. Yes. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, you've talked about the, the gains that have been made. Can you talk about maybe some areas where we need to see some improvement? And, and I know Joshua had mentioned the issues involving children. Can you explore that a little bit more? Sure. Um, 
children, uh, it's very important for us to pay attention to what's happening. And, you know, it's not unusual for me to get a call from an adult now. And I received one from a person in Wake Forest very recently who is uh, American Indian, who is from Oklahoma, uh, should have standing in their tribe as a federally recognized tribe. But that person has been away, and he's, he's 80 years old from the community so long that he is now finding it hard to connect back to the tribe and get a tribal enrollment card. So he was referred to me by one of our tribal council members because Greg Richardson can fix it, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the only thing I could tell him is uh, provide him rather was information to the, the tribal enrollment office at Western Turkey. Uh, in the United States, this process of recognition uh, is pretty similar all over. You have the state, federal, state and federal recognition. You have the non-recognized groups. And then the Bureau of Indian Affairs has procedures that must be followed in order for our, one of our tribes to become federally recognized. In North Carolina, we have the similar uh, procedures that's required. And we were talking earlier about uh, what happens if a tribe is not state or federally recognized. What, is, what, what would be their status? Well, they have no real status in terms of getting access to programs that are set aside for tribal enrolled individuals or federal set-aside program funding. But they do have access to mainstream funding through local government programs and services, such as the housing, such as the workforce development. So when we have a situation where a person contacts our office and they're not state or federally recognized, but they might need housing, and if they live in Durham, then we're going to call the Durham uh, housing programs here, Durham Housing Authority, to try to help them get into that program. If they're unemployed and they're seeking uh, uh, employment, we're going to call the local workforce development office and we're going to try to get that person services through that channel. So it's not a situation where, um, you know, we're just going to say, well, we can't help you because you're not state or federal recognized. Our staff is charged with responsibility of trying to you know, get them in the door of an agency where they can receive services. Uh, the, the tribal members can go directly to the, the local tribal uh, enrollment office. It is, it is a situation relating to tribal enrollment. Federally recognized tribe, for example, Eastern Bay or Cherokee, we provide people with uh, contact information directly to that, that agency. Mm-hmm. Now, could you talk about the, uh, uh, the process for implementing the uh, Indian Child Welfare uh, Act, and uh, how, first of all, well, how, how how did how did the Indian Child Welfare Act come about? Well, well, it's, what's, it's, what's the history? It was designed to protect American Indian children uh, to to make sure they weren't you know mistreated and stolen. Uh, unfortunately, but by stolen, now, can you talk about that history? Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, that goes into the rem- removal period of of our country where. American Indian children were taken from their communities and placed elsewhere into boarding schools. By, by, the, federal, by, the, As a, by the government? By, by federal policy, yeah. yes. Right. And so uh, we have that playing out. Uh, we, we have you know, a situation right now where we've been able in North Carolina because we recognize the fact that the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, only applies to federally recognized children. So what happens to the state-recognized child or the non-recognized child that is being removed from their community? We feel that the impact is still the same. If you remove that child from their culture, from their community, down the road, they're going to be severely impacted in terms of being able to reconnect with that community. So in North Carolina, we've been able to get some policies in place that are very similar to the Indian Child Welfare Act in that when a child, uh, when the parent parental rights are terminated, 
first thing the, the caseworker must then, if the child is, is identified as American Indian, if the parents identified as American Indian, they must go and try to find the family member first. If there's no luck there, then they have to go and try to contact the, the tribe. If all fails there, then the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs is the third place to go. So we have three ways now in our state to make sure that these children have some connectivity with their history, their heritage. And we can look at many other states. And if the federal equal is only applied, the state-recognized Indians and the non-recognized Indians are just going to be placed uh, along, you know, within the parameters of the pr procedures that are provided. Historically, we talked a little about, Joshua said that he didn't get much Indian law in his law school career. Um, in reality, it's just not highlighted. The Indian Child Welfare Act comes out of a period of time when the United States is confronting its definition of a reasonable man. And what is the reasonable man standard we all studied in criminal law? One of the cases that I read, and I'm not sure that everybody reads it, was about two Indian parents who did not take their child to the dentist when he had a toothache, and the child subsequently got such a bad infection he passed away. And the parents were charged with several different counts of murder. Um, in the United States, it's always been hard to, dis to, to achieve that equality in how we define a reasonable human being, a reasonable person, is an Indian a man? And there are any ways, many ways you can see that throughout American history. The result of, a pro, of a, an era in our history when Native people were not seen as human beings, their standards of living, their culture, their ways of functioning and interacting with each other was not seen as reasonable. And so children were being removed at rates we can't fathom today because welfare, child welfare workers, the state officials were removing those children at exponentially high rates and saying, removing them by saying your culture, the things that you deem reasonable are not, are unsafe for this child and therefore we will not only not return this child to your family, we won't return the child to anybody in your tribe because your culture is inappropriate. And so after cases like that happened, eventually there's a movement where people in America start to see that this high rate of removal is inappropriate and the Indian Child Welfare Act is passed to help correct or at least limit that happening. But you have a whole generation of Native people who are, as Mr. Richardson is probably confronting them on a regular basis, who've been removed from their families, sent away to California or wherever, um, and completely divorced from their culture. That don't, not only harms the individual, it harms the tribe because now I've lost that future farmer, that future hunter. The future lawyer we needed might have been adopted out. And we don't know where they are and they don't know where we are. And there are so many studies that show Native children removed from their homes, removed from their communities, removed from their tribes, are removing a part of themselves. And we all see the value in that. And it's a credit to North Carolina that, that there have been compromises when the Indian Child Welfare Act may not apply to a lot of Native children here. We're band-aiding, we're correcting, building bridges to that law to address the problem here. But most North Carolinians didn't miss that boat, unfortunately. And that's the difference in federal recognition and state recognition is what happens. The benefits you get from being federally recognized, we may not get but we have suffered the consequences of being Indian, whether we're recognized or not. Right. And so the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs has done, in particular on the issue of Indian child welfare, 
a remarkable job of addressing that, but they are unique because there are a lot of Indian children in America who do not have that benefit. North Carolina is standing out in that respect. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention on the flip side of that, um, when we deal with NACRA, Native American Graves Protection Act, which again only applies to federally recognized Indians. But in North Carolina, we've been able to get some statutes on the books that parallel uh, as a nexus with the federal law. So what happens today if uh, there's a construction site on campus here and the contractor hits an unmarked grave? Well, under the standards of the statute, the coroner, Sheriff's Department of uh, Police Office, is notified. The coroner comes out and determines if it's human or not. Also determines if there's any evidence of it being Native American or American Indian. If it's American Indian, cultural resources must be notified. And then cultural resources must notify the Commission of Indian Affairs, my office. A report must be written. What was found, when it was found, where it was found. Uh, outside of what we put in place in North Carolina, we would only be dealing with NAGRA, so we would only be dealing with the federal side of things. And on the final point I want to make with that, NAGPRA only applies to federally recognized Indians. So we know that there are some Indian burial remains uh, that are stored in North Carolina on some of our campuses. Uh, and I think campus leadership is ready to turn those remains over to the tribe. In the case, and I don't want to get too deep in this because it kind of gets legal, but uh, the university that, that I'm thinking about is very willing and able to turn those remains over, but by law they can only turn them over to the federally recognized tribe that is engaged in this. The tribe that's been identified will not come forward. The tribe identified is not one of our state tribes, out-of-state tribe. But the state-recognized tribe who said, look, we'd like to reinter these remains. We don't, think it's a, uh, we don't think it's right for them to be on the shelf and stored in a locker room. But they cannot be turned over to the state tribe because of the, the statute. So mm -hmm. the university is tied to the federal statute because mm -hmm. they receive federal funds. So they must apply NAGPRA. So therefore, we're, the tribe, state tribe cannot say, well, we'll bring them to our property. We'll provide a place for them to be reinterred. So that is another example of the disparities that we face. Mm -hmm. we, we have a, a few minutes left. Joshua, I know that you have uh, received a new appointment, actually, with the Commission of Indian Affairs. Can you talk about that appointment? Yes, so I have been talking back and forth to Greg about his involvement in the commission, which has always fascinated me. Um, I've known him since I was a little boy, probably as long as he probably knew me before I was even born, and probably when my mom was carrying me. Um, and it was one of those things where it's like, how can I step up and help? Because I, it's, these things are important to me, and I'm passionate about it. And with all the things that Greg and Heather have mentioned, where there's the disparities in federal and state law, there just has to be some point where you say, well, what can I do to be of service to other people? And that's another reason I'm at Central. Being of service is a big thing that we do here. So with that, I talked to Greg about there being a position that was open on higher education, so a liaison with the commission and promoting higher education 
among Native students in different universities and different programs. And because that position is vacant, I believe, believe that there was a lot of things missing there that could an opportunity to connect more resources. Because Greg, I'm sure he gets all the calls for a lot of things, but he can't do everything. It takes a team of people. It takes a village, as they say. So when I saw that available to be able to assist, I immediately reached out and said, how can I help? Because it's important for me to be able to do that and give back. So I'm hoping, I haven't attended any meetings yet, because this is a new thing, to be able to provide insight and assist with continuing to do things similar to bringing powwows to campuses that don't have them and on a larger scale and things of that sort and other programs, awareness a lot of times, because it allows students to realize when they see a native of presence on campus, we can come there. We feel comfortable and we know that there are people who support us there. So as a liaison in that position of higher education, I hope to assist with that and also help with the state recognition committee as well. Mm-hmm. Now, when is the uh, powwow at, uh, here at Central? So the powwow this year will take place on November 2nd, Saturday, from 12 to 5 p.m. Grand entry is at 12 p.m., so get there early so that you can see the beginning and the end, enjoy all the food and all the great dance and all that stuff. And, and there will be food available for everyone who attends. There will be great food available. <laughs> and as someone who was there last year, they'll tell you that they probably spent their pockets full on <laughs> crafts and definitely food because people were going back until the man literally ran out of food and said, I got to bring more this year. <laughs> so for someone who wants to learn more about the Native Americans in North Carolina and also nationally, uh, in addition to attending the, the powwow that we've got coming up, uh, what else would each of you recommend they do? And, and, and in answering that question, can you talk about why it's important that those who are not Native Americans learn about your culture and history and, and you know, what, what you all are, are fighting for? I'll start. So from a law student perspective or a student perspective in general, you are you go through a lot of things in law school to see the sensitivity. There's a lot of cultural organizations. I think the biggest thing goes back to what Greg mentioned earlier about being counted and realizing also that people have faced a lot of similar struggles. A lot of minorities have went through many things that they can identify with one another on and realize that the fight for civil rights still goes on even today. So I would say to encourage people one, to watch the news because there's always a lot or read about it, a lot of decisions that come out that people don't realize the impact that these things have, even on a small level or a nationwide level, so be aware. But also realizing that even if you don't attend a powwow, at least talk to people about the struggles that others have faced. So as a Native student, I definitely talk to other African-American students, Hispanic students, and people who face similar struggles to realize that, hey, we're not that different. We can band together and work together to help with a lot of things. And I think that's probably the biggest threat to a lot of uh, people that don't give these opportunities is that they don't expect people to band together. And that's what I would encourage. Do that for the very purpose of being aware and helping one another. I recently become enlightened to the idea of podcasts. I think it's important for people who are not members of Native communities, tribal communities, or who just want to know more, that you hear from authentic voices. Understand what tribal people are thinking about, tribal members, tribal leadership, from tribal people. Don't ask someone else to tell you about this other person. And so I highly recommend finding some podcasts conducted by Native people. All My Relations is my current favorite one. Um, We now have Native historians, Native authors, Native lawyers, Native 
you can find an indigenous person who's doing what it is you're interested in. Find that authentic voice to understand what they're trying to convey. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed uh, often at the office when, when someone called me and said, we'd like say we'd like to get American Indians involved in our efforts, but we don't know how to contact American Indians. And I'm just amazed at that because, you know, we have so many avenues right now through which to gain knowledge and contact people. I mean, the Internet's a wonderful thing, but you can't always depend on that. So if someone is calling me and they're telling me that they, they, they have a seat coming up on their commission or their council or committee and they'd like to get an American Indian, but they really don't know how to go about doing that, I said, well, we can help you do that. Our website's a good place. Travel websites, good place. Attending uh, travel powwows and community events is a good place. And getting to know an American Indian. Have you? I will ask people often: Have you ever met an American Indian? Have you ever sat down and have a had a had a conversation with an American Indian to see what what's on their mind? And a lot of times the answer is no. You know, um, so I would encourage you know people to reach out to the communities to get involved in events and activities, read, uh, no uh, DNA won't determine whether you're an un- American Indian. It will give you some benchmark. It can't determine if you're a member of a specific tribe. No, so be careful on those kind of things. <laughs> but reach out to us. Become a part of the, the community and include us. And, the finally, and finally, I would say that if a person is in a leadership role uh, where they have influence and they've not reached out to include American Indians, in their work, I think that's a deficiency. I think that's a disparity. There's always an American Indian attorney, American Indian school teacher, American Indian technician that can help you with some aspects of life. So think about including an American Indian on your board, on your committee, or on your commission. Uh, And I really want to say a thank you on the program for uh, Governor Cooper for initiating the Indigenous Peoples uh, Proclamation. I attended an event at the city council in Greensboro week before last, before the, the actual day of, uh, of indigenous people. Uh, last night in Charlotte, the city council adopted a resolution. Uh, Apex tonight, uh, mayor of our, uh, where I live, Garner, has already said he's willing to do a proclamation for Indian Heritage Month, which comes up in November. So said all that to say, that if we have all of the, the, those entities out there, including us, including some ex- aspect of American Indian, whether it's a proclamation, appointing someone to a city council committee, uh, and we encourage American Indians to get involved in the political process. We don't encourage them you know, in terms of which way to vote or what party affiliation, but be involved in the community. All right. Well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Greg Richardson, who is the executive director of the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs, which is the largest Indian commission in the United States and is doing such great work in this state and is a model, I think, for many states. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done, like I said, for decades. Heather McMillan Nakai, who is an attorney, in her personal capacity, she is engaged in litigation against the United States seeking enforcement of individual Indian rights for the Lumbee people. And she serves, obviously, as a role model for young, uh, soon-to-be lawyers. And speaking of which, we have Joshua Richardson, who is a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. He is very active. He is president of the Student Bar Association, president of the Native American Law Students Association, and a recent appointee to the North Carolina 
Indian Affairs Commission. We'd like to thank you as well, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we are happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.